Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 138. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this on January 9th, 2024, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. Sidebars are term for an episode off the timeline, which I do occasionally when I come across something interesting or recognition of a holiday, that kind of stuff. In this case, I'm rolling out some hot takes on the annual meeting of the American Historical Association, which I attended in San Francisco this past weekend. That, in turn, stimulated thoughts in my easily distracted brain about the teaching and purpose of history, of which I must unburden myself. So the first part of this episode is an overview of the AHA annual meeting in general terms. And then I'll roll out some cranky observations. So it's also an editorial of sorts. Do not fear. Substantive history will return in short order. The American Historical Association, the AHA to the Cognoscenti, loomed large in my childhood. Not many people could say that, I suppose. Most of you know that my father was an academic historian, professor of history at the University of Iowa when I was growing up. Until the early 1990s, the AHA held its annual meeting between Christmas and New Year's, presumably because historians don't typically have a lot of extra money lying around, and both convention facilities and the hotels that cater to them are incredibly cheap that week. Now, as it happens, my birthday falls during that period, so when my father was still getting established professionally, he usually missed my birthday to go off to the AHA. This is not a complaint or some weird childhood hang-up. I have those, but this isn't one of them. Dad was a very attentive father, and I and my sibs got plenty of time with him. Anyway, birthdays were never that big a deal in my family. I only make note of it to observe that the AHA annual meeting loomed large in my consciousness back in the day. So when I got into the history podcasting game, I joined the AHA and planned on going to its annual meeting. I registered to go in January 2022, and it was in New Orleans, since the convention hotel was only a walk from our pad there. But the day before it started, I came down with an asymptomatic case of the COVID and decided that the responsible thing was not to go. Last year, I had some conflict, whatever it was, so the 2024 meeting just concluded was the first time I actually got to attend. Like all industry gatherings, I'm quite sure that many, if not most, historians attend either to see old friends or to network in the profession with an eye toward getting a job or getting input on a project or publishing a book. Since I'm not part of that crowd, I really don't know what historians these days talk about when they get together informally. The formal part of the meeting consists mostly of panel discussions, which are known as sessions. These address some unifying topic and typically involve three or four historians who have recently published arguably related papers and a chair of the session that helps organize the discussion. During any given time slot, say 8.30 to 10 on Saturday morning, there are 20 to 25 simultaneous sessions. 
So even if one fills his entire calendar going to some session for every time slot, you'd only get to see 4 to 5% of the sessions on offer. The point is that the rank generalizations that follow are actually based on a very small sample and therefore should be taken with a grain of salt. There are also plenary sessions, which are intended to accommodate all the attendees, a president's address, which in the past has been the occasion for some really notable talks by leading American historians. I quoted Carl Degler's in the original introduction to this podcast. There are workshops such as how historians might find non-academic jobs, the academic job market sucking so much. And there's a trade show floor like there is at many such conferences. This last was actually my favorite part, since it consisted of displays set up by university presses featuring the history books that they have published recently. I spent hours prowling the trade show floor, taking pictures of books to buy via the miracle of Amazon, which, it must be said, is absolutely not the socially acceptable way to buy books among this crowd. As it happens, there were very few sessions that covered my main area of interest for this podcast, early American history. That led me to a topic that does interest me, how the teaching of history has evolved in our schools and universities since, shall we say, my day. I went to sessions with such titles as Historical Inquiry in History Classrooms, Teaching History in Polarized Times, Historians in the culture wars and higher ed. And what is the civic value of a history education? There were any number of competing sessions I did not see along these general lines. My impressions, such as they are, come from the sessions I did see. I have reduced them to a couple of hot takes, which may or may not be fair. The first is that academic historians feel under siege especially if they live and work in one of the states, such as Florida or Texas, there are others, that has responded to the conservative campaign to bend the teaching of history away from the seemingly dominant critical narratives of the last generation to something more closely approximating a national heritage approach. This is a complicated topic. I have very mixed and still poorly informed opinions about it, so I'm not going to get into it substantively here. In the spirit of transparency, my broad opinions are two. First, I'm opposed to legislative interference with a curriculum in colleges and universities, even those run by the state and even when I sympathize with a problem that red state legislators are trying to address. I just believe that this is not a problem that's effectively or intelligently tackled by laws or regulation without trampling on academic freedom which I believe is a critically important value, especially in public universities. This should come as no surprise to longstanding and attentive listeners who know that I'm honored to serve on the board of directors of FIRE, which is opposed and even sued to overturn content-based regulation of university curricula, such as Florida's Stop Woke Act. Second, I also believe that to the extent that historians, as opposed to other disciplines are reacting to the conservative reaction, as it were. Many of them are in denial about the ways in which historians have put themselves in the middle of a massive political fight. 
Let me offer a few bits of evidence, none of which involve such obvious points of conflict as the 1619 Project, which is explicitly an effort by certain historians to reframe the teaching of history in public primary and secondary schools to accomplish a political objective. Item. Many, if not most, of the historians on these panels openly describe their personal mission to push back on conservative populism, Trumpism, MAGA, and so forth. Literally, the first slide that went up in one of these sessions bore a single question. What obligation do history teachers have to oppose Trumpism? Nobody in attendance said that the answer was, not our job, or suggested that history teachers should also oppose left-wing authoritarianism. Item. In one such session, a retired historian, a woman in probably her 70s who had pioneered women's studies at a California university, very diplomatically asked if some of the conservative reaction was because universities had become so dominated by the left, we won in her terms, that the academy had become alienated from much of the population it served. The panel was stunned into silence for several seconds, and then they all denied that was a possibility. Filing out of the meeting, I stopped her and told her she was right, and that, in my opinion, these people were in denial. She nodded. Thank me. Item. At another session, a professor described his method for converting conservative students to his point of view. Offer brainless conservative texts in response to much better critical texts. His example was the Trump administration's 1776 project. Students came to realize by this method that conservative history was just lame. In other words, the way to deal with conservative students is to bamboozle them, strawmanning their views rather than steelmanning them. Item. Another professor talked with great excitement about his success in converting conservative students who then go home and shock their families with their new political views. He was met with applause. I was perhaps stupidly surprised he admitted the quiet part out loud. That he did reflected his absolute confidence that nobody in the room would speak up against him. Item. The plenary session on Saturday night, which I ended up skipping because I was exhausted and desperately needed a drink, was titled Rethinking the Far Right in American History. It featured Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, whom I trust needs no introduction for her left partisanship. Item, the University of California Press, which had a big booth on the trade floor, handed out buttons for attendees that read Scholar Activist. Apparently the possibility that might be an oxymoron did not occur to the editors of the University of California Press. In other words, at least as represented in the sessions I saw at the AHA annual meeting, the purpose of academic history is now in the minds of many, not all, historians, to energize students who are already progressive and convert those who are not. Is it any wonder that the History Academy has set itself up for a political backlash? That old school women's studies scholar was spot on.
Now, it must be said that there were a few professors who pushed back, however gently, against the apparent majority who thought it was their mission to subvert or attack conservatives. Alan Taylor, the famous historian of the late colonial era whose books I've quoted on this podcast, stood up and said that he enjoyed engaging with local history groups who often looked at things far differently than academic historians. Doing that had taught him that there was a deep interest in history among the American public. The success of this podcast and others confirms that, by the way. And he suggested that it was important for scholars to meet the American public where it is, or in words to that effect. Taylor's prestige accorded him some deference, but there was no concession from the rest of the panel that it would be a good idea to do more of that. In another panel, Leonard Moore, a black professor from the University of Texas at Austin and the author of Teaching Black History to White People, gave an extremely eloquent and blunt defense of conservative students and the important perspectives they bring to the classroom. I bought his book on the spot and sent him a note of thanks for his comments, to which he immediately responded. I suspect Professor Moore's students learn more than they do from more activist colleagues because they are genuinely respected in his classes. I'm going to try to have him on as a guest at some point once I've read enough of his work to hold up my end of the conversation, assuming, that is, he's willing to come on once he hears this episode. Now, there's a great deal of anxiety in academic history about the tremendous scarcity of tenure-track jobs in colleges and universities. This is a constant theme on History X Twitter, and very much evident at the AHA, where various sessions were given over to alternative employment possibilities for history scholars, including museums, the government, and so forth. Not once did I hear anybody ask what might be done to increase the number of students majoring in history, which has declined by 75% or more since I was in school. Perhaps people did discuss that question in the 95% of the sessions I was unable to attend, but there was no session given over to that topic in the catalog. I did have conversations on the side with a couple of other attendees, and neither of them had heard any such discussion either. To be blunt, I'm suspicious that many professors avoid this topic because the changes that might stimulate more interest in history are distasteful to them, perhaps inconsistent with their own professional purpose. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, my own view is that the insistence that history be usable, that it be deployed for today's political purposes, is one of the reasons why interest in history among college undergraduates has collapsed. Of course, the purpose of history has driven a lot of learned writing by academic historians, only a fraction of which I've read. My opinions, therefore, are manifestly not those of a professional in the field. I'm an outsider, a mere consumer and repackager of history. True, my opinions are informed by countless conversations with my father back in the day, and no doubt his opinions would be considered passe today, but I remain profoundly aware that I have a lot to learn. It's entirely likely that in the future I will revise my views on this topic, and you, our beloved listeners, will be the first to hear of it. So with all that throat clearing, I believe there are both philosophical and utilitarian reasons 
the Academy to pull back from its now widespread commitment to using history for contemporaneous political purposes. There are, as I see it, two philosophical objections to at least to deploying history for political purposes, whether from the left or the right, about which more in a moment. The first has to do with the greatest benefit of learning history, that it teaches epistemic humility. The term has a hardcore philosophical meaning, but I mean it in a more popular sense, the belief, the working assumption that we may be wrong and not know everything. History teaches that even the greatest and most consequential humans, not to mention perfectly ordinary people, were capable of astonishing errors, lapses of judgment, and moral failing. And therefore, so are we all. History teaches that we should be humble rather than certain in our beliefs, for they probably won't stand the test of time. So far, so good. The problem, of course, is that partisan politics, especially as practiced today, requires precisely the opposite. Absolute confidence in one's beliefs, however unwarranted that confidence may be. Call it epistemic arrogance. The political use of history, therefore, corrupts history absolutely. The value of history is that it teaches epistemic humility. But partisans use history to bolster epistemic arrogance, the antithesis of history's highest purpose. Using history in the service of epistemic arrogance corrupts history absolutely. That alone should be reason enough for academic historians, at least, to resist the urge to deploy their scholarship for partisan advantage. The second philosophical reason for historians in particular to avoid converting their work into fodder for partisan politics is that doing so spends the hard-earned coin of their own institutional credibility. That credibility was built up over the last 150 years, really since the establishment of history as an American academic discipline, because people trusted historians to seek the truth about the past. When historians cite their authority as historians to assert some special expertise in a contemporary political spat, they are in effect spending the prestige and credibility built up by their predecessors to win a tawdry partisan point. That prestige and credibility is quickly exhausted, as we now see in both the declining interest in academic history and the political backlash against activist historians. The institutional credibility of history has, it appears, declined inversely to its use for partisan ends. It's no wonder that fewer people are willing to defer to that authority and fewer students want to study it. Was that old trust always deserved? Definitely not. Historians weaponize history for all sorts of bad reasons long before the current generation. Long-standing and attentive listeners know how Herbert Bolton, once president of the AHA, suppressed Zelia Nuttall's work to protect the discredited idea that Francis Drake landed in California. Did some historians carry the water of the old Confederacy or in the service of nativism? Of course. But most historians of older generations at least tried 
to be neutral academics most of the time. My father once said that the greatest compliment he ever received from a student came in the early 1970s when politics on campus were also tumultuous. One of the high-profile student radicals took his class and after the last lecture at the end of the semester approached my father and told him that he had no idea what my father's political beliefs were. Does that mean that my father achieved some sort of platonic neutrality? Of course not. But he tried to teach history without exposing his own political opinions. There was value in the striving, even if the result was never perfect. He felt he owed that to his own sense of professionalism. I suspect he also felt he owed it to those who had come before him, on whose shoulders he stood. My sense is that few historians today, especially in the rising generation, feel the same way. To be fair, one of the things that has changed is that more or less everything has become fodder for partisan politics. That Herbert Bolton seems to have participated in a fraud to protect the myth of Drake in California does not mean that he bent his academic work to winning the next election. That he was a crank on that one issue does not mean he was a flack for a particular political party. It's harder for historians today to disentangle their narratives from politics because all narratives now take on partisan coloration. But that doesn't mean there isn't value in the trying. Those are my philosophical objections, that weaponizing history betrays its great purpose, which is to teach epistemic humility. And it inherently dissipates the hard-won credibility of the profession as an institution. There are at least four practical or utilitarian reasons to avoid weaponizing history. I've spoken about these before, so trigger warning, there's some self-plagiarizing going on here. We podcasters play fast and loose. The first reason is that weaponizing history is intellectually lazy and almost always dishonest. Let me propose an analogy that might be useful. Have you ever seen or heard a religious person argue for or against a particular public policy by quoting a line of scripture? I suspect there's a verse in the Bible or the Holy Quran or in teachings of the Talmud that can be read to support almost any public policy, one way or the other. People who cherry-pick one verse over another to win a political argument are not being intellectually honest. They are zealously advancing their cause. They are using religious scripture as a weapon. Well, history, like the Bible, is full of facts that can be extracted with tweezers and proposed to support more or less any contemporary political claim. It's a cheap trick when religious leaders do it to get out the vote. It's now more respectable when historians do it. The second utilitarian reason why weaponizing history is bad is that it naturally makes the reader or listener suspicious. If it appears that the purpose of the historian is to win a political point, whether out of ambition for progressive social change or to promote national greatness, then any thoughtful student will immediately smell a rat and lose trust in the author as a teacher of history. 
I hate it when that happens. And when it happens a lot, as I suspect it does in many of today's high school and college classrooms, students will see history as just another PR stunt. And the teacher is just another partisan flack rolling out a narrative to support their favorite party. Sometimes, in fact, the teacher even confirms that by all but saying so on Twitter, even if he or she is not quite so candid in the lecture hall. Well, there are plenty of partisan flacks on cable news, including, sadly, professors of history. One need not spend the money or time on a college class to hear the same old song dressed up with the increasingly dissipated authority of a Ph.D., so do you suppose there's a chance that the decline in history enrollment is at least in part because students understand this? The third utilitarian reason consciously politicizing history is bad is that it makes for incredibly boring history for the same reason that it's boring to watch partisan hacks yell out the talking points of the day. Once a student or a reader figures out the historian's political angle, it all becomes a lot more predictable. And that is boring to anybody with a remotely curious mind. You might think of it this way. The personal journey of history is in deciding for yourself what is and is not consequential. The best history teachers, like the best teachers of all subjects, prod their students to come to their own conclusions. Historians who relentlessly portray history as a series of causes and effects that lead somehow to today deprive their students of making that journey of discovery for themselves. Partisan professors actually want to deprive their students of that journey because they aim to enlist them in their political cause. I think that betrays students of professors who do this. I think that the best students know they're being betrayed. Finally, the weaponization of history by left or right hurts our country. The homepage of the website for this podcast says that, quote, we believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Americans as a national people, regardless of ancestry, have no deeper roots than our own national story. Not being bound by language or ethnicity or religion or long ties to an ancient monarchy, blood and soil to students of nationalism. We need a history that's widely agreed upon, at least in its main features, and is dignified or respectable at its foundation in order to have a nation at all. No nation can stand on an ultimately depraved history. The ugly parts, and some of them are very ugly, and we do not shrink from them on this podcast, do not change the fact that there are few countries anywhere in the world that, on the full exploration of their past, have a history more worthy of dignity than the Americans. Any version of weaponizing history destroys the dignity in our history that we need to be a nation. By the way, that's true for putative conservatives who would strip our history of truth and therefore dignity 
by legislating the teaching of only a glorious exceptionalism as equally as it applies to critical theorists who believe that the United States is an inherently corrupt colonialist project. Now, sharp-eared listeners, especially those with a postmodernist bent, will argue that in searching for a national history with dignity, as well as all that other stuff, I'm also using history for a political purpose. Well, that's true, but only in a very abstract sense. The construction of a meaningful national story with dignity does inherently oppose the deconstruction of the United States and the tearing down of its institutions and worthiest legacies. If you believe the United States ought not exist as a country, that its past is so depraved that it all must be torn down, you won't agree with my postulate, and you will definitely dislike this podcast. But then neither will you like Jill Lepore, who's no conservative, but manifestly believes that Americans need a national story on which we can negotiate some shared consensus. To me, caring that the United States have a national story with dignity, however flawed, is different in kind from trying to persuade your students to support one political party over another, which is the overt mission of many historians today, as evidenced by the things they said in the slides they put up at the AHA annual meeting. None of this is to say that history should be told with any particular emphasis. There's no true or correct or best way to interpret the past. Well-meaning scholars, and for that matter, podcasters, can and will argue passionately about the proper weight to put on this or that historical fact or interpretation. That is what the practice of history, even for the scholars of my father's generation, is. The question that bedevils the profession is the meaning of well-meaning. You've heard my point of view, and in the spirit of this podcast, you will come to your own conclusion. The last question is whether I am correct that the Academy's relatively recent weaponization of history in the service of purely partisan politics has had an impact on the interest of students to major in history. Some activist professors argue that they are defending interest in history insofar as kids today, you can't see my scare quotes, want their academic work to relate to social change and to be relevant, whatever that means in some sense. Perhaps that's true. No doubt that is what attracts students to ethnic studies, women's studies, social work, and other fields explicitly committed to activism. My suspicion, however, is that professors are hearing what they want to hear. They are not hearing the even slightly more conservative students who love history, but are turned off by their first experiences of it in college. Perhaps those students who might add up to a significant number of potential history majors see that they will not be respected by professors wearing scholar-activist buttons, figuratively if not literally. Or maybe they just don't want to be told to reach certain conclusions in order to get a good grade or don't want future employers to assume they're progressive activists. For my part, when I hired people, I was delighted when I saw resumes from history majors for three reasons. First, this part was selfish. I knew that they would be interesting. 
Second, they usually could write fairly well, a skill in catastrophically short supply in corporations. Third, they were far more likely to be epistemically humble. Not that I'd heard the phrase back in the day, but I did know the concept. In one AHA session, a panelist noted that it was curious that a disproportionately large number of law students had been history majors. All sorts of reasons why this might be true or bandied about, but nobody suggested the obvious one, that epistemic humility is essential to competent lawyering, even if lawyers have to pretend certainty to represent their client zealously, and that students of history are disproportionately likely to know that they don't know. Today's activist professors claim they do know. They have to. That's the essence of political action in our age. They are so certain, it seems, that they do not see they are betraying the first purpose of studying history. Well, some of us have noticed, and others know there's something wrong, even if they can't put voice to it. Rant over. Thank you for indulging me in this first ever editorial sidebar. Please send me comments or objections or counterarguments by all the usual means. We shall return to our regular substantive history podcasting in the next episode with some ugly stuff in New Sweden. There shall be forest-destroying fins. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging, and please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.